your work life, all of our work lives. Welcome to Work with Marty Nemco. Arguably the most successful and iconic capitalist is Warren Buffett. Apart from his approach to deciding what to invest in, which is not a topic of this show, this show is about work, what personal characteristics helped and, yes, hindered him? What lessons about him and maybe his workplace can apply to all of us uh, in our career? What can we learn about the realities of what it's really like to be a capitalist? With me to address these questions is the author of Snowball, Warren Buffett and the Business of Life, the definitive biography, really. There have been a few of them, but this is the, this is the, the real deal. It's based, partly because it's based on her 10 years in Warren Buffett's work life. So, Alice Schroeder, welcome to work with Marty Nemco. Thank you, and thank you for specifying it was in his work life. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was—I had originally that it was in your life, and so I had visions of the listeners thinking you were going to be sleeping with them, and therefore going to be totally biased in the, everything you yes. said. But no, I, I made it real <laughs> clear what the nature of the relationship was. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway. Um, you know, many people today. I want to. You know, I'm, I'm, I always try to put myself in the shoes of the audience. There are a lot of people today, maybe especially here in the Bay Area, who view anybody who's a white male who's made a lot of money as privileged, unearned privilege, if not outright having acquired their their wealth dishonestly. Where would you honestly say that Warren Buffett fits in that meme? So. I would call him privileged, and he would call himself privileged, and and here's why. He is, not only is he white and male, but his father was a congressman and a stockbroker, and the family was solidly middle, if not upper middle class. He went to Columbia Business School, and while there, he developed a network of other savvy white businessmen that, that really had a huge influence on his career. His sisters have the same... IQ as he does off the chart, but they were raised to have babies. And uh, he calls this the ovarian lottery, which I think is a great term. The ovarian lottery is the idea that 99% of what all of us achieve is due to having the right parents. If you're born in Africa to a desperately poor black single mother who has AIDS, you're not going to grow up to be Warren Buffett, no matter how smart you are, how hard you work. You're just, it isn't going to happen. And so the idea of I did it all myself is, is a myth, and uh, nobody does it all by themselves. And that's one of you know, the things that he is most fond of saying. And so I do believe that there's privilege, and I would argue that he's very privileged and that he's very open and honest about it. Well, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Let's do this chronologically. Let's start with Warren Buffett as a kid. You said, you know, just in passing, you just mentioned that, you know, it's who you're born to. Now, some things is about where you're born to, but some of it, of course, it is genes. And you, you wrote that you, you wrote, quote, you thought he was, quote, born smart, apart from any privilege. What makes you think that? He was a really precocious as a child. Uh, he... Uh, created a horse handicapping system for betting at the horse races before he was 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, he calculates the square roots of license plate numbers when he's driving for fun. Mm-hmm. And he was selling in business and actually making money when he was six years old, selling things door to door. And so this is not an ordinary person. And it, 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 you don't, you know, when you're three years old, you don't say, oh, I'm going to be ambitious and do this kind of stuff. This is, this is born smart. Yeah. 
Of course, none of us are all genetic. I want to be clear, underscore that here. Um, you said that Buffett's success derived a lot from reading a lot and staying focused on business. He was not a dabbler. Is that a fair summary of him? Yeah, he's a, uh, one of those people who's an inch wide and a mile deep, and he's interested in business and money. And he spent really his whole life, starting from when he was old enough to accompany his father to his office and learn business to that, to reading newspapers, reading trade press magazines, hanging around with other business people, talking business, asking questions. And he created his social life mostly around people that he could talk business with, even if he was playing golf or something like that. He has dug that mile that's only an inch wide. He's he spent his whole life doing that, and uh, the focus is, is so intense. Uh, you know, most people want a little more variety in their life. He, this is what interests him. It's such a passion. It's the only thing he really does. Most people, indeed, are not very intense, and this Im- kind of implies that the workplace in which he worked was very un- inordinately intense. Is that accurate? Do I paint a picture for what the work-life culture was in Warren Buffett's office. Well, the so he is uh, quite an introverted person, and uh, when he started out, he worked at home. He worked in an office off of his bedroom. He worked alone. He did everything himself. Mm-hmm. Partly that was because he's a tightwad and he didn't want to spend any money. But his work life has always been one of focus and isolation and concentration. So his office takes up the entire floor of a building, but he rarely sees any of the other employees other than the two women who work as his personal assistants. He might, once a, once a week, he might walk down the hall and say hello to a couple of people and his CFO, but the rest of the time he stays in his office, which is, it's got wooden paneled walls and wooden um, shutters on the windows. He keeps the shutters closed all the time. So when you're in there, it's like being the inside of a cuckoo clock. I mean, it's it's just very, very closed down in a way that, you you know, the focus is there. And then he just has a, a desk full of newspapers, magazines, books, publications, reports from all the businesses, and he just, just chews through them. Uh, you know, just reading all day long, and that's what he does, and then he talks on the phone, and then he goes home and plays bridge, and that's his day, and it's all the same day after day after day after day, and he he rarely leaves Omaha. He doesn't want to go anywhere else. Of course, this defies two major areas of today's conventional wisdom about work. One is that we need to be team. There's no I in team. We we need to be collaborative. We need need to. It takes a village and all that. And also the notion that we must have work-life balance. or we'll never be a high achiever. So he has absolutely violated them. I could see the many listeners again because we are in the San Francisco Bay Area here who hate hierarchy, who hate solo and competition. And here is this guy who's the richest man on earth next to Bill Gates who's also given away more money next to than, than anybody else other than Bill Gates. And he has absolutely thrown cold water on this principle. Uh, is, how do you, you know, you, you've, in our pre-interview and conversation, and even in the beginning of this interview, you sound like a modern-day woman, given that he is the opposite. He is an individualist. He is an isolate. He, is, he doesn't believe in work-life balance. How do you, as Alice Schroeder, feel about Warren Buffett? Well, I, 
I think he's adorable. <laughs> yeah, he's like a little kid. Uh, he's a lot of fun. He's very witty. But in terms of the way his, he works and his work style, um, he's he is a very complex and unusual person. And I would say so left-brained mm-hmm. uh, that... Hyper-rational. Hyper-rational. You know, some people would bring up terms like spectrum. <laughs> he is very, he is he is so left-brained that if you think of him like a software developer, you mm-hmm. can think of a lot of developers that sit there with their headphones on, mm-hmm. and they're just in the zone, and that's what they do, and they would be pretty resentful if they had to make a lot of conversations with people all day long and do you know they'll go out and they'll play hacky sack in the parking lot or they'll do a team building exercise (laughs) but that's not how they spend their day they're super focused Mm -hmm. he is like that he 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 would have been a good developer if he had been you know born in this era he probably would have enjoyed it very much he thinks that way so that kind of focus if that helps yeah i would think that many of the listeners again here is a guy who believes in individualism and not work-life balance and it's all business and all capitalism you would think he would be not people would not think he would be one of the world's most generous philanthropists in the world explain that what appears to be a contradiction well, he certainly did not start out generous, and there was no sign of it when he was younger. Um, he he is a child of the Depression, and there was a period when he was really young when the family uh, really struggled for money. But he, in his early days, he did not give money away. He did not give. He was very stingy, very very stingy with his own family, even. And it was a real bone of contention between him and his wife, who was extremely generous, and he did not he would say no to every every philanthropic request and it was really not until he was in his 70s uh and had uh had, had it was worth you know over 50 billion dollars that it came to him that there could actually be a joy in giving money away and watching some good being done by that oh. so uh-huh. that's please, what please. it that's what happened. It was a long evolution. I heard, though, that it, it heard. I read in your book that at age 35, Susie says, start giving away your money. You're worth billions of dollars already. And he says, you know, I'm going to end up doing more good by in keeping investing it and making more. And so in the end, the charities will get a hell of a lot more money than if I give it to them now. Uh, it, was that just a pretense or was that a, a legitimate argument? And if so, how did Susie react to that? So with Warren, everything that is a legitimate argument can also be a pretense at times. That's something uh, he usually has more than one reason for anything that he does. And so you've hit just hit the nail on it. Um, it is absolutely true that if he could compound the money at a higher rate of return than just putting it into the market, that there would end up being a lot more 20 years, 30 years later. Right. And that's just a fact. Right. But it was also a fact that he wanted to hold on to the money because mm-hmm. he wanted to be the world's richest man huh. and that giving the money away would diminish that goal. And that was not a goal he would ever speak aloud or say to anybody, but that was what he wanted. It was a measuring stick. And um, he felt, you know, the, he, he actually wanted to have uh, the stock price of Berkshire Hathaway uh, be uh, equal to his age. So the idea would be, you know, $80,000 when he was 80. It, of course, has far surpassed that now, but 
uh, that's really what the reasoning was. And Susie, of course, would point out over and over, you know, there's a, you're missing the joy. It's a very bloodless, cold thing if you don't even get to see the good work that's done by the money because you're dead. That would be her perspective on it. And eventually he came around, but he came around when she died. Right. Well, of course, you didn't describe her as a pure saint. She did leave him um, without telling him where she was going. She went to San Francisco, and, and your own words were something like uh, to pick up various vagabonds and whatever, and she used his money to rent some cool place on Knob Hill. So, uh, you know, in fairness, it wasn't like she was this, this prescient saint. <laughs> is, is that a fair assertion? Well, I mean, Susie was a, she was a normal human being. So, look, she had been married to somebody who was paid not much attention to either her or the kids and was a workaholic. And then the kids graduated from high school, and uh, she wanted to be free. And there wasn't going to be that with Warren. He, was, he It just was never going to happen. And so she said, look, I'll still be here for you. I'll we'll see you at Christmas and we'll go on vacations and I'm not going to ask for a divorce, but I'm going to live my own life. And she moved to San Francisco. Um, she had a relationship with her tennis coach from, uh, Omaha and he went with her and they, uh, they had a lifelong relationship out there until she died. Uh, and, uh, it was an arrangement that they made. Warren didn't want to lose her or give her up. And there was the money, uh, so, no, she was not a saint. But I think it was, you know, it was sort of pragmatic. They decided that they would rather have that arrangement than get divorced. I did, I did, but what you wrote about is this, you talked about an entourage. It wasn't just this tennis coach, and but it was his money to pay for an entourage of her, uh, something, I don't know if you called it, various strays you wrote in the book. The strays, yes. So Susie, so Susie, uh, was a of course remember the timing of the 1970s and what the 1970s was like and it was a, a time when people were very bohemian and experimental and Susie uh, went from being a, a, a you know an Omaha housewife to being able to just f- fully participate in that San Francisco lifestyle of having you know parties and inviting all kinds of just interesting people and going down to the Esalen Institute and right. Sur and doing all kinds of stuff that was very liberating for her and she you know she had the money and i you know she but it was his it. Money, now right? her her apartment was not palatial i mean don't don't get the wrong impression it was not like she bought an enormous place it was in pacific heights and it was you know ultimately she wound up in pacific heights and it was it was lovely but um she just was liberating herself Okay. You're listening to Work with Marty Nemco. <coughs> I'm talking with Alice Schroeder, the author of the definitive biography um, of Warren Buffett. It's called Snowball, Warren Buffett and the Business of Life. And the reason it's called Snowball is because he was always acquisitive. And starting as a little kid, he wanted to accumulate more and more snow on the snowball. So, but let's, you know, let's focus on the career. Let's go back to the career stuff. One of Buffett's principles of business, which some people, whether you're in the for-profit sector or non-profit sector in your own life, dear listeners... Um, he, he his, his key principle is that he cares more about weighing machines, W-E-I-G-H, weighing machines than voting machines. Explain that. Yes. Yeah, so specifically with respect to the stock market, but it really uh, applies to business in general. Uh, in the short term, everybody's opinion when they buy or sell a stock or a business is, is like a vote. 
and on a given day, it something might be very popular or it might become very unpopular in a really short time. Whereas uh, the weighing machine is the fundamental. I mean, we get on the scale, and it doesn't lie, right? It tells us how much we weigh. I know, I know. It's really rotten. <laughs> I hate the bad. scale. And so, Why um, wouldn't it lie every in, once in a while for me? Yeah, oh. but he, he looks for things that are, that are quite chubby, and yet uh, that are businesses that are very weighty, and yet they're, you know, the voting machine doesn't believe that, and the voting machine is, is not pricing them. So it's like a, you know, a sack of sugar that's being priced as though it were only a teacup, and it's because the voting machine is, is decides that it doesn't like sugar today, and that's how he tries to find things that are unpopular out of favor, and yet their real fundamental value is is more. And that applies to buying whole companies and buying stocks. I would think it's much harder to do that today. When he started out, there was far less knowledge available to the people who would be investing. Now, with so much information available on the Internet, I think that's maybe more than anything why Buffett's performance of Berkshire Hathaway's stock has not been so good. Do you buy that, my analysis there? Yeah, I do. It's it's so much harder today. There was very little competition when he started. First of all, there there just weren't that many people investing. There weren't. It was you know in the 1950s, mm-hmm. the stock market had not come back from the 1929 crash, mm-hmm. and he was just starting at the perfect time for someone who, to come in. There was no one copying him. It was. It could not have been better. And he, you know, he was very lucky in that sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now there are so many people, just like Lemmings, all trying to follow the same style. And so if someone gets an idea, everyone else has it 30 seconds later, and there's, there's no advantage to be gained. Uh, and the interesting thing is there, you still have this phenomenon of getting the market getting things wildly wrong. I mean, look at the financial crisis when you know, you went from you know the stock market went down 40% and you had the you know subprime housing all everybody thought their house was worth you know twice as much as it actually was and then uh, you can get these manias that still happen but that doesn't mean that any one person is going to be able to figure it out and he himself says he didn't get the housing uh, bubble right although weirdly he told me to sell my house in 2004 because of the housing bubble. But he didn't invest accordingly. Wow. Yep. You know, there there really aren't any gurus. Frankly, that's why I invest in Vanguard index funds. You know, I don't think I can beat the market. I just want to keep my expenses down and invest in the best companies. Uh, You know, the largest companies, right or wrong, tend to attract the best people. And Mm -hmm. because people would rather work for Google or Facebook than work for some small little place unless, you know, if they're really a superstar. And so I'd rather bet my future on those big companies and not try to time the market and simply invest in the S&P 500. Uh, Mm -hmm. What would Warren Buffett say to me in response to that? He would say you're doing the right thing. Um, He would say unless unless you have some special knowledge of some industry or company that means that you know more than the collective wisdom of all the other investors out there, that's exactly what you should be doing is what you described. Okay. Let's uh, let's turn back to Warren Buffett's principles that may be applicable to all of us in our lives. He uses something called the bathtub metaphor. Tell us about that, especially about bad memories. Yeah. So this one, the bathtub is, is the memory, and it, it works for him. I don't think I don't know if you can switch it on and off, but the bathtub memory is that when when something happens to change his perception of a situation. So maybe somebody that he he likes does something 
that he doesn't like. Um, maybe they, you know, they say something that's mean or catty or, you know, anything that's forgivable. Um, he'll keep that in his mind. It's like water poured into a bathtub. And then a week later, the bathtub just sort of, the drain gets plowed, the water's gone, and he'll fill it up with new water. And it's as if the thing never happened. And there are situations that he literally just doesn't recall and he'll be like, no, you know, I don't remember that. The memory no longer exists. It's not like somebody who says, well, you know, I'm going to forget about that and put it aside. It, it, it's really a remarkable phenomenon the way he can compartmentalize to the point of making things disappear. And it's actually quite a good, um, mm -hmm. it's a good practice because if he's forgiven somebody for something, for example, if he's decided that they did something he didn't like but he can get over it, it really is as if it didn't happen. Yeah, so he doesn't it's hold never grudges. lurking in the back of his mind. Yeah, so he doesn't hold grudges, in, in essence. Yeah, and he really, now, I mean, and there are some grudges that he holds, but it's because he chooses to. You know, I, some, I'm, I, some, I was just reflecting on, so far in the 22 minutes we've been talking, while you, when I asked you what you feel about him, you said, yo, he's adorable. But when I really listen to, think about all your statements about him, there's a sense you don't really like him or respect him that much. Am I misreading that? Yeah, you yeah, yeah, definitely. Go so, ahead. you know, I'm trying to be I'm I'm trying to, you know, kind of burst the mythology by telling you what he's really like. But the questions that we haven't talked about are you've you've asked me the challenging questions, you know, the hard questions. Um, but the the other questions are about what's what is it about Warren Buffett that is good and likable and we haven't gotten to any of that yet but the number one thing is he is fun he is witty huh. he is an egalitarian and he is idealistic and ethical and he is very principled and it's really refreshing to be with somebody who is um has high ideals and is also funny because a lot of times those things don't go together right. uh, and he is somebody who is a great original thinker and he is so intellectually interesting to be around uh, but uh, above all he evokes a feeling in people and it's not just me this is something that people who know him talk about there's something about him that makes you feel protective of him Hmm. He he really had terrible parents, uh, and they they were just not good. We could we don't have time to go into all the ways they weren't good, but it's in the snowball. And um, he brings out something in people that uh, is a parental like feeling of wanting to be a little take care of him a little and protect him a little because he needs it. And so that's the number one fa way I feel about him is that despite me having to be really ruthless in the book about exposing everything about him that was true, that wasn't always attractive, I actually love the guy, and I do feel protective of him. So, uh, you know, you let off the show by talking about he was definitely a, a, a beneficiary of privilege, yet he, as you flesh this out, he's, his parents were nearly broke, his parents were terrible. So his privilege, they were terrible. right? Mm -hmm. So his so his privilege wasn't as extensive as maybe was implied at the top of the show. Well, <laughs> in terms of white privilege, male privilege, all of those things, that's what we were really talking about. But he had a, his mother was a, a cruel, emotionally abusive um, person who who severely damaged all of her children's lives, particularly him and his sister Doris. And his father allowed it to happen. And his father was a. Um, a, a, a strange person 
and um, the upshot of it was that uh, Warren grew up uh, feeling that he did not deserve to exist. Wow. See, that's exactly... L- literally did not deserve wow. to exist. See, this is what, you know, privilege is, you know, you said, you, I think quite accurately said, privilege is who you're born to. Well, if he was born to a, a father who was pretty evil and a mother who made him feel so bad that he didn't exist, this doesn't sound like a hell of a lot of privilege to me. So, I, you know, he, what I thought we were talking about was he benefited enormously from the system of that time, you know, of being of racial inequality, anti-Semitism was rampant at that time. You know, he he had a great education. I mean, he had to overcome his own personal fears and insecurities, and he did that, and he was extremely astute about how he went about it. But, I mean, he, you know, he was the son of a congressman, and he, so he had a lot of what I would call structural advantages that were very significant, and to fail to acknowledge those just because he had mean parents, I think would be would be a cop-out. Very good. Okay, let's go back to his attributes, because I think those are critical. So you uh, you said that in, in the book, or in, in addition to exposing the negatives, you said he was great at evaluating people. Could you describe what makes him good at evaluating people? Yeah, so he, he classifies people into three buckets, and he asks himself a couple questions. The first one is, would this person hide me from the Nazis? Hmm. And that is just such a brilliant question Mm. because it just gets straight to the altruism of the Mm. other person. And you can can figure that out pretty quick about a person. Mm. And then with everybody who wouldn't hide him from the Nazis, he knows that they've got some kind of personal agenda, but he wants to know if they have a personal agenda and he wanted something for them, would they do the same for him? Mm -hmm. And... So you can really, you can do business with a person who's selfish, but if somebody's asking you for stuff and they're always making requests and favors and then you know that they would never mm-hmm. reciprocate, mm-hmm. then you want to be pretty careful how you deal with that person, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's that's a different bucket. That That's a person who's purely transactional and they're not even going to reciprocate. And then the last are the people who just, you just you can't do business with them at all because they, they'll break any deal mm. that you make with them. Mm. And he figures that one out by um, watching their behavior. And I, it, that's a kind of a complicated topic, but there aren't a huge number of those people, but he uses baby steps in dealing with people who aren't totally reciprocal to see if they'll break a small deal first mm-hmm. uh, that's not very risky. And then if he finds people who are just deal breakers who, who will will teach you basically then there you're just off the pale you're yeah. in the last bucket where he he won't even deal with you i would imagine he'd really follow that rule of don't judge by people by what they say but check out how they what they do absolutely yeah yes. talk talk's cheap yeah uh, talk know, is cheap i know a lot of motivational speakers who will say a in public and then privately do the do the exact opposite anyway um, you're listening to Work with Marty Nemco. I'm talking with Alice Schroeder. She's the author of the definitive biography of Warren Buffett called Snowball, Warren Buffett and the Business of Life. I want like the idea of staying on the positive because there's more lessons learned, hopefully, from some of these positive attributes. You, you wrote that he's a really good time manager. What's an, a not obvious example of his being a good time manager? So my favorite is the way that he manages phone conversations because we all find ourselves getting mm-hmm. stuck on the phone yeah. and having difficulty extracting ourselves. When he's made a point or he's gotten the information he needs, uh, the other person may try to go on talking, but Warren will say something like, 
well, it sounds like you'll handle that really well. Mm-hmm. Or he'll say, oh, I'm glad to hear how it's going. Thanks for updating me. Something that makes it sound like the conversation has ended, even if the other person mm-hmm. is just starting to get rolling on huh. whatever story they want to tell. And no one is going to say, wait, wait, I'm not finished yet to Warren Buffett if they ever want to talk to him again. And actually, most people aren't going to do that anyway. And so he just brings it to an end and acts as though he didn't notice that the other person wanted to keep going and going and bending his ear. And you can kind of tell after a couple conversations, if he wants to be on the phone, he's either asking questions or he's talking himself. And if he's not doing both, then you need to find a reason to hang up right away because he's done. Mm -hmm. And those are the people that he continues to give time and attention to. So I actually think that's a pretty useful technique because he just butts right in there and then tells the person thank you for your story before they've even told it. Got it. You you wrote now, is that what you meant by when you're saying that he doesn't listen well? No, no. So uh, the not listening well is um, he listens when he wants to. He's very curious. But when it comes to his judgment about business, he's he only likes to think about things once. And one of the ways mm-hmm. that you refer to him being very good at time management, he doesn't spend mental energy thinking about things twice. If a situation reoccurs, he just brings up what he's already decided. So if somebody disagrees with him about something that he's already decided, the words literally almost bounce off his head. I shouldn't say literally almost, but it is as though he doesn't even hear them. You can almost see in his eyes that he's thinking about something else. Um, And it is a very interesting phenomenon because he is not going to reprocess something that he's already reprocessed. And it it is, I would say, 90% of the time, it works really well for him because it's efficient and it avoids him getting in pointless discussions of things. 10% of the time or some small percent of the time, you know, he doesn't hear something that he needs to hear. And I have a personal anecdote. There was one time that I was warning him about something important with a business he bought and it, I saw it bounce off his head, and it was so important that later I, I brought it up again, which is risky, and I basically insisted that he listen, and he just sort of brushed me off, and then later, you know, the situation did blow up, and it was something that I, I wish that he would have listened, but I, I still would wager that the amount of money he's made by following his judgment and being very determined about it is probably exceeds tenfold the amount of money he might have saved or not made by being more conversational. So it's, I, it works for him. I've got to tell you, it don't, not only works for him, but I've had the privilege of on this program, and also I'm a career counselor, and I've had the privilege of being the, a personal and career coach to some of the most successful leaders in Silicon Valley. And they all operate the same way. They will listen. They are very effective time men. They will listen until they feel they have enough information to make a judgment probabilistically. They're not sure, but they they say, you know what, uh, my time is better spent moving on to the next item. So we're deciding, mm-hmm. and then he's close. He or she is close to anything else. Is that a fair yep. way of describing it? Yeah, absolutely. And then they don't they don't want to have it. They they don't want to go back and right. readdress it again. And it's just. It, the, the only difference with him is that m- many people would say to you, we've had that conversation, the decision's been made. With Warren, it's just like marbles bouncing off his head. He doesn't say <laughs> anything. You, huh. just, you just watch nothing happen. <laughs> that's the Omaha side of him that's not confrontational. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay. I think so. All right. Yeah. Uh, you know, with all of that confidence, you also wrote that he has low self-esteem. That's also true of a lot of highly successful people, from some of my clients who are very successful, from all the way back from Abraham Lincoln to Oprah Winfrey. Did Buffett's low self-esteem fuel his drive, or did he succeed despite his low self-esteem? So I, I really think it was both. Uh, when he was a child, it definitely fueled him because he did not he, – he could not get attention from his family any other way than by being the precocious kid who was interested in business. And so the all of the his father's friends, such attention as he did get from his father – in school, he carved out a little niche from for himself, for, uh, where he didn't have to compete in academics or athletics or anything social by being the kid who came in and acted like a stockbroker at school, even in elementary school. Those those things were a huge driver of his ambition and the desire to to make money and have money in Omaha, which was a very um, it was a very competitive town. It was a, a, a few families kind of controlled the the money in town. So that was absolutely a driver. However, where it tripped him up was he was so socially awkward in uh, in skills. Conversations with him were really performances by a business with kid. He was a social cripple, is how he would describe himself, and and he did not know how to interact with people. He wasn't. Um, socialized by his parents at all. He took the Dale Carnegie course, right. but really what happened was he met his wife, Susan Thompson, who was the daughter of a psychologist, and she trained him how to behave socially, and she trained him in empathy. He had to overcome. He, he was not getting anywhere, really, and using all of his precocious business skills until his wife taught him how to deploy them to sell himself and raise money for his investment fund. We haven't talked about his kids. His philosophy was to only give a modest amount of money to his kids and no cush jobs. He got one of his sons a job as a maintenance man at Seize Candy, and the kid took yes. it. Now, some of people would view that as harsh of Warren, as you were you know, implying emotionally insensitive, etc. How do you, who spent 10 years working with Buffett, how do you feel about his, that philosophy? So it's interesting because yeah, I got to know him. I got to know a lot of these people people who were very wealthy, including including the Gates and, and, and Charlie Munker and, and a number of others. And one thing I came away understanding that I really did not understand before is how hard it is to raise children in a rich family. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mm-hmm. can, it, it, it's, it's very close to being a no-win situation mm-hmm. because if you give them the money, you risk entitling them and spoiling them. Mm-hmm. If you withhold it, then, you know, you have the opposite effect of yep. them feeling that you were cruel and yep. withholding. And um, I have seen so many people try to strike so many different balances, and, and it's extremely hard to do. How you know? How do you raise children of a super, super successful parent without them feeling like, how do I ever live up to my dad? And I think Warren went one extreme. He went the extreme of, this is the ovarian lottery, right? He wasn't going to give his children unearned privileges. They were going to start out the same way that any kid would who would go to a warehouse and sweep the floors and this was this philosophy and then he eventually moderated it under the influence of his friends and time and Mm. seeing the effect that it had my father it's a tough question my father did that with me 
I mean, I was working for not, for nothing, no money, just standing and watching, standing bored all day as a security guard in front of his little store in a terrible neighborhood in Brooklyn, and mm. uh, then and then fin- filling out billing notices one after another by the thousands. Um, and I swear, this is not just trying to reconcile it, but I swear that 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 taught me to value work intrinsically, that it isn't mm-hmm. about money or prestige. It was about that inculcated my work ethic that has stood me well my whole life. I really believe that. I am, unf- you know, you could call that atavistic, but I I do believe in being. If somebody if if somebody told me I had to be a ditch digger, even today, or a shoeshine guy, I would try to be the best. I would say F. I can't say it on the radio. The best F shoeshine guy or ditch digger in the world, because of this intrinsic belief in the value of all work, no matter how lowly. I don't mm-hmm. know. Before what it's worth. Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, I think it's really wonderful that he didn't put his son in as the junior vice president of the candy company. Right, right. You know, that to me, I mean, he had him start in and do real work. Right. And I think that was extremely valuable. All of his kids worked and, and did various things and had to earn money. They didn't get big allowances. Um, there he was you know there were some stories i mean you their stories are in the book but when his daughter was pregnant and was struggling and needed a loan for a kitchen he turned her down and said go to a bank there were you know i mean he he was he took it to kind of extremes but um i think everyone in that family understands the value of of hard work and work is important it has intrinsic value Indeed, he got much more generous over the years, as you said. After age seventy, uh, he became one of you know. You described him in our pre-interview and it's in the book as he's become very liberal. Tell me about the. In addition, you mentioned that Susie had an impact on him. What other influences made him become such a liberal? So he, his father was not just a conservative Republican, but he was a, a real libertarian. He was Rand Paul but without Rand Paul's charisma and, um, and popularity. And he was often in Congress, he was voting uh, against virtually the whole rest of Congress. And, and Warren was very Republican when he was young. Um, the civil rights movement is really what changed his point of view. In the 1960s, uh, it, there, were, there were riots in Omaha, uh, terrible race riots, also, there was, he grew up in a family that was very anti-Semitic, and he became, when, when he moved to New York and went to Columbia Business School and, and was, uh, had fellow students and people that he worked with that were Jewish, he became just repul- revolted by anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the combination of the civil rights movement in the 1960s and um, the rejection of the anti-Semitism of his childhood um, made him... A, a, a real, a deep, deep, deep believer that all lives are created equal, and that made him a liberal. He's not a registered Democrat. He actually supports people in both parties on occasion, but he, um, his principles of equality are really the driving force behind all his political beliefs. And yet, he remains a capitalist. I mean, you and you. I mean, you have been deeply immersed. Uh, in corporate America for a long time, including 10 years very close to Warren Buffett, have your views about corporations and capitalism more broadly changed as a result of being in the belly of the beast? 
have my views of yeah, capitalism yours. changed? Yeah, my views of capitalism are that it isn't working very well right now and that it used to work better when we had things like a functioning antitrust system that didn't allow businesses to assemble a kind of power that they have now. I'm in the camp that thinks that Facebook should be broken up, for example. Um, we have um, the whole the whole corporate system in the United States, to some extent, even embedded into law, is very focused on the short-term interests of shareholders, and that is often turning out to be against the long-term interests of society, which the shareholders should care about because in the end of the day, it's their world. And so what you're seeing right now is a revolution taking place in environmental, social, and governance where the voter, the investors themselves, are starting to say, we demand that you think long-term. And it's happening very rapidly. It's being read by, led by Larry Fink, who is the CEO of BlackRock. He writes a letter every year. I would recommend everyone read it. It's about social purpose and how corporations have to have a social purpose. I serve on corporate, corporate boards of directors. It's what I do um, in my, you know, kind of my day job. And this idea that corporations can be just about making money quarter every quarter trying to beat earnings is dying. It's dying really fast. And I, I think that, you know, Buffett, um, he is, he comes from that era where making money uh, was the only thing that you were expected to do and just maximizing profit margins. And then late in his career, again, with the philanthropy, uh, the, the concerns of the world have, have caught on to people's thinking, and he is, he is, in keeping with that, although he does it privately through his philanthropy. Well, I hope that uh, capitalism at least works for you in making a few shekels from your book, Snowball, Warren Buffett <laughs> and the Business of Life. Um, it is. I did read it cover to cover. I think you may be able to tell that from uh, uh, from the interview. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, I mean, I was talking at the moment to the listeners. Uh, it's, it's an easy read, but yet authoritative. It's not a puff piece. But it's also not a hit piece. It's a balanced piece. And it was a pleasure. Alice Schroeder, I thought you did a wonderful job. I'm not supposed to. That sounds unprofessional on the radio for me to say that. But I really think, Alice, you've done a wonderful job here on the radio. You've done a service to all of our listeners. And I thank you very much for being my guest on Work with Marty Nemco. Oh, Marty, thank you. It was really a pleasure, and I enjoyed it very much. You be well, Alice. Okay, you too. Take care. Bye. She was also a delight. When we, we, I always do a pre-interview, and we spoke for probably 45 minutes an hour uh, after I had read part of the book to just try to unearth what I thought were the most interesting nuggets. And she was so generous, and she's kind. And she's, you could see she's a fair-minded person, and I really like balanced people. We live in an era of ideologues, and she strikes me as the perfect example of somebody who sees the good and bad in a lot. And uh, she's exactly the kind of person I think we need more of in this world. Anyway, uh, but now we turn to you. Dear listeners, this is the second half of the show is often focusing on you more specifically. The first half often talks about macro issues, but you are an individual, and it's all well and good to talk in theory about models and approaches and whatever. But um, And normally I'm often I'm providing tips, and I invite you to call in for a workover, and I do want you to call in for a workover, but I'm taking a risk. You know, after all these years, it is critical. And I've been doing this radio show. It'll be 30 years at the end of September. It is critical that I don't get stale. I don't want to be seen as, you know, tired blood. I want to always be trying experiments. They may or may not work. 
So normally, again, I'm talking about tips for success, da 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 But there was a cut. I was listening to an album that was by a guy who would be the last guy on planet Earth that you think would say anything profound. This old singer named Neil Sedaka, we know if you're old enough, you know him from Calendar Girl, Happy Birthday, Sweet Sixteen, you know, bubblegum music. But he's got one song that is so painfully honest about what the real world of work is like for millions and millions of people. And if indeed capitalism is in its decline, which I do share Alice's view, I think it is, this song could be its anthem. And I want to play it in its entire, nah, maybe half of it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll let you know. Um, so you, and listen carefully to the words, and then I will invite you to call if you can resonate with this or not, and I'll try to help you with your work life. Okay, ready to go? Gene Murray. So many folks dissatisfied with everything Who need someone to understand they're lonely They're lonely And they're not alone And everywhere They shrug their shoulders Tell themselves that they don't care make believe they're happy oh they're happy but not really Going nowhere And 
Well, I took the risk to do the whole three minutes worth. For me, maybe you don't all resonate with it as much as it does for me, but there are so many people who give the world, they're expected to hold up the world, and there's all this confusing messages they give you, but they deep down they know they're going nowhere. They may say at the stupid party, I'm happy with or without the effect of legalized weed, but deep down their happiness is transient. Deep down they're lonely personally, ineffectual career-wise. They feel they're part of the 99% that's got the cards stacked against them. Maybe because of your race, gender, sexual orientation, but maybe just simply because you weren't born to the right parents, genetically or the upbringing or neighborhood. Or simply, you know, you've got your limitations. We all have limitations. But a hell of a lot of people, and even though the, the unemployment rate is the lowest in 50 years, there's still a lot of people who are going nowhere because they're employed, but they're making a minimum wage or a part-time temp gig. And then there's a two-month gap in between where they're making Zippo. And if, God forbid, they did something wrong, then they're not eligible for unemployment, and so now they're eating cat food and ramen with five roommates or back with their parents, vaping their way into oblivion because they can't face the reality of trying to compete in this job market. If this sounds like you at all, I can't guarantee I can help, but I've helped some pretty struggling people as well as, as I said earlier, some of the most successful people on planet Earth. If you would like to take a shot, the price is certainly right. I don't care how poor you are, you can afford this. If you call Work With Marty Namco now here at KALW, I do what are called workovers, and I will do my very best to help you at least take a baby step, maybe sometimes even a giant step forward. If you are struggling in your work life, the phone number here at Work With Marty Namco and KALW, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. Unless that song was so long it made everybody change stations to, to, some, to something, something else. In any case, so while I'm waiting... Um, I was planning to do a segment of this show on workplace wellness until I saw the research on their effectiveness. And the most compelling came from Kaiser. And they wrote an article about it in what they called their Kaiser Health News. came out just last month. It's entitled, How Well Do Workplace Wellness Programs Work? These are programs, they're efforts to get workers to lose weight, eat better, stress less, sleep more. It's an $8 billion industry in the U.S. Indeed, most large employers, for-profit as well as non-profit, offer some kind of wellness program with the growth fueled by our tax dollars because Obamacare mandated, or at least provided incentives, for companies to provide it. Unfortunately, all that $8 billion has been spent before we knew how effective these wellness programs really are. Is it a good use of taxpayer dollars? But now, and this is what the Kaiser article is about, researchers from the University of Chicago, no second-tier school, have conducted the first large-scale studies to be peer-reviewed. That is, they didn't just get it published anywhere. It was reviewed by their peers. And that employed a randomized control design. That means there was a control group, an experimental, and they were, the people were in the control and the experimental at random. And they published their finding in the most prestigious medical journal in America, the Journal of the American Medical Association. What the scientists did is they randomly assigned 20 uh, outlets that are like Walmart, uh, Sam's Club kind of places, but it's, it's one back east called BJ's. But the picture a Walmart or a Sam's Club 
They randomly assigned 20 to offer a wellness program to every employee in all those 20 outlets and then compared results with the 140 stores that did not offer a wellness program. And the wellness program consisted of asking the participating workers to fill out a health risk questionnaire, to have some medical tests like blood pressure, blood glucose, and take up to eight classes on topics such as nutrition and exercise. After 18 months, the efforts did not result in differences in health measures. No improved blood sugar, no improved glucose. How much, and the, they measured how much the employers spent on the health care. It didn't go down from all of that. Nor how often employees missed work. Their job performance and how, and I'm reading, this is all basically I'm reading or very closely paraphrasing from this Kaiser article. Their job performance and how long they stuck around in their job was also unaffected. And this is a quote from the author. Quote, if employers are offering these programs and hoping that health spending and absenteeism will go down, this study should give them pause, end quote. And this is, the study is coming as, amid the increased interest in wellness programs. And, oh, there was another, the Kaiser article reported, uh, this wasn't just the University of Chicago set of studies. The University of Illinois did a research project where individuals were randomly selected to be offered wellness programs. This study, published just last year by the National Bureau of Economic Research, concluded, and I'm quoting again, workplace wellness programs did not reduce health care costs or change health behaviors. And now the last sentence in the Kaiser article. Everyone involved in studying or conducting wellness agrees on one thing. Changing behavior and getting people motivated to participate at all can be difficult. So that's why I can't do a segment on it, but I thought it was worth five minutes. Lest you make that the thing you go to the mat about, can get convincing your employee, I want a wellness program in my workplace. Maybe there are better things, given the, this research, that these are not just little anecdotes, but a, a, a big one. I'll give out the phone number now. If you have a work-related problem of any sort, I do what I call workovers. The price is right, zero, zippo, nada. Whether you're 16 or 76, self-employed, working for government, working for a nonprofit, working for a profit, large company, small company... The only problem, the only common denominator is you got a problem. <laughs> if you got a problem, I'll do my best to help. The phone now here at Work with Marty Nemco and KALW, 415-841-4134. That's 415-841-4134. I was planning to, uh, I was auditioning, frankly, a very famous, and I'm deliberate, I don't want to get into a, a into a, bashing some individual, I'm not that kind of person, but a very eminent person who was a professor at a prestigious university, and she had written a book um, that was about how to improve your work-life performance or whatever. So as I often do, I pre-interview them uh, to, to understand what, what, you know, what's beyond the book, the, you know, the empirical basis, how solid is the research behind it, or are they just shooting from the hip? Well, this person, despite being... This, I, I'll just, she's a very prestigious professor at a very prestigious university. The basis for her assertions were all anecdote and what worked for her Ivy League students, which is completely different than the pool of people most subject to soundbite advice, like reframe, have grit, have a growth mindset, raise your expectations, power pose, be fabulous. I'm not exaggerating. These are all 
people who have been promulgating these concepts have made millions. I don't know. I haven't seen their their tax return, <laughs> or nor war, nor uh, Donald Trump's. Um, but they they certainly have gotten a lot of major press and book contracts and whatever. Those fra- every one of those phrases really are powerful. Are said again and again. All you, you that you really need to follow just their simple plan. Unfortunately, and this is what I wanted to share with you, and I don't have much time. Unfortunately, logically and empirically, such nostrums are longer on appeal than on real-world significant benefits. Indeed, many real real scientists dismiss those gurus' basis for their surety, their sureness, which I said, mainly anecdote or non-randomized studies that the, <laughs> that the creator of the concept conducted and with very little rigorous replication by independent researchers. I have, you know, I wrote an article about this in Psychology Today. I don't have time to go over it, but that's what I'm going to ask you to do because I have a whole review of the literature on what these critiques of these are as well as how much stronger evidence there is for how little malleability we have. We can refine who we are. Certainly, we're not immutable. You know, we can refine who we are, but we, we can, we may, if we're a black and white TV set, we can refine it, but we can't turn ourselves into a color set. I will never be able to fix anything. I'm terrible. I call, the, I call the repair person. I can't draw no matter what, but I can play the piano and I can think on my feet. It's crucial to build on your strengths and not follow these nostrums. And so go to Psychology Today and just Google Beware of Pop Psych Fast Fixes and you will see a pretty thorough, fair-minded review of the literature on those pop nostrums as well as the more substantive issues regarding how much we can change. Anyway, that is Work with Marty Nemco for this week. Um, I want to thank uh, Jean Marie Asaturo. I really enjoy having her as uh, she's filling in for, for um, Joanne Marr, my regular board op. It's always a pleasure. And of course, for all of you for listening, please join me again next Thursday at 7. You can call in for a workover. Uh, and uh, my topic will be what to say in nine ticklish work situations. Until then, this is Marty Nemco reminding you that we find comfort among those who agree with us, growth among those who don't. For the archive of Dr. Marty Nemko's articles, information on his 11 books, including his new one, Careers for Dummies, plus how you can consult privately with Marty, go to martynemko.com. That's Marty, N-E-M-K-O.com. Join Marty again next Thursday evening at 7 for Work with Marty Nemko here on 91.7 FM, KALW, San Francisco. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.